if you have your uh, um, if you have your outline sheet uh, on page seven, or if you don't, uh, we're at Titus chapter two, verse eleven. Uh, I want to. We started that last week, but I want to complete this. Um, as I said last time, it's it's this year. It's a copy of the PowerPoint slide that I use when I teach Titus. But anyway, um, this paragraph, chapter two of Titus, verse eleven through fourteen is one of my favorite paragraphs in the whole Bible. I, I just love this passage because its focus is on grace. Now, if you remember the context, uh, the theme of the book is that sound doctrine produces godly living. And he, uh, that is, uh, Paul had told Titus to, um, to instruct your people, teach them sound doctrine, uh, make sure you choose godly leaders. Make sure that you, and he kind of segmented the church into the older uh, teaching, the younger men, young men, older women, younger women, and so on. And then how it even affects the workplace, which in the ancient world was a slave economy. And then he zeroes in, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Incredibly powerful passage. But the focus is on grace. And as we suggested last week, verse 11 is the past blessing of grace. Verse 12 is the present focus of grace. And verse 13 and 14, the future focus that grace gives, hope. So the let's just review that again. Grace of God has appeared is referring, of course, to Jesus, right? I mean, I mean that's the, the point that the greatest manifestation of, of, of the grace of God is a person. It's his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is because of him that salvation is available to all people. Because the focus, I'm thinking, for example, of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace, through faith, you're saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace explains, no matter what category you're in, in, thinking of, Grace always explains God's dealing with humanity. Why does God do what he does for the human race? Because of grace. He loves the human race and so on, but it's grace. He extends favor that's unmerited. And we talked about that last week, common grace, which is the grace God shows to all human beings. When it rained the other night, it didn't just rain on my property. It rained on my Buddhist neighbor, my atheist neighbor, my Eastern Orthodox neighbors, it, all people benefit from the common grace blessings of God. The oxygen that we breathe, their saving grace, which is what he's focusing on here. Then there's the sustaining grace of God. He owes us nothing. He offers us everything. His grace explains that. Uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a famous British pastor years ago, uh, wrote a book in which, uh, among other things, he says, it begins with grace, it continues with grace, and it ends with grace. It is all about the grace of God. 
And that's a very, very similar summary statement to what Paul is arguing here. Now, we did that last week, but I want to focus on verse 12. Training us. It's, again, it's focusing on grace. Training us to renounce two things and to embrace three things. Now, I want to focus on the word training there. Now, pardon me for... Pardon me for doing this, but I think it's helped. The Greek word there is paiduo. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you, but do you recognize pedagogue? You ever hear that? Or pedagogy? Two people. How many? Well, pedagogy, pedagogue is a teacher. Pedagogy is the, the, uh, the doctrine or the, the, the uh, techniques of teaching. So when Paul says that grace piduos us, trains us, let's put it another way. Let's flesh this out a little more completely. God puts us in the school of grace to train us. So if God puts us in the school of grace, now if you're a teacher, you'll recognize this. What are his behavioral objectives? Do you know what I mean by that? God puts us in the school of grace. What does he expect us to learn there? Two things, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and secondly, to embrace three character traits, self-control, upright, godly lives in the present age. So let's think about this for just a little bit. I I want you to, um, I want you to try to, to, to very personally and very applicationally, what is he saying here? Because obviously that's an analogy that God puts us in the school of grace to train us. I mean, that's not, you know, that's just an analogy. But what does that mean? What, to put us in the school of grace, that grace teaches and trains and equips and molds and shapes us. How does that work? Well, you must, yes. You must have a willingness to enroll in the school yeah. and want to complete its program. Go ahead. When I, when I, we covered it last week and I was listening to it, it I flashed to the Second Peter piece that mm. process of sanctification. It is. It is. It is. This is about the sanctifying grace of God in our lives. But let's take it to just a, a, a very important practical level in your own life. Just think about that. The grace of God. How does the grace of God train me? How does the grace of God equip me? How does the grace of God help me to want to renounce, using the words of the text, to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions? The more you come to understand what the grace of God really means in your life, the more you're going to be willing to renounce these things. And, and, and didn't you say that he gives us the power and the strength mm-hmm. to avoid mm-hmm. the sins and That's the things right. that we might That's have right. participated in That's before right. we got grace? No, that's just my way of saying it. No, but that, that's... 
it's very, very good, very well said, actually, very practically said. Um, my pastor has asked me, uh, I always do a summer series in July and, and August, and he asked me to do, a couple months ago, he asked me to do it on the doctrine of salvation. Weeks. <laughs> so, you know, I'm telling you, I really thought about this, prayed about it, so I just decided, and I just finished it yesterday because I wanted to have it all done. Our kids are here, and then as soon as we're done, we're headed to Pennsylvania for uh, deal with our, some things with our moms. But anyway, so I need to have all that done so they can get it all together when I get back to start in July. So I decided to do it this way. The first message is going to be on the depths of sin. In other words, it's kind of obvious, but for us to truly understand what God did in Jesus Christ and salvation, we have to understand what sin is. And I, as I was studying and reviewing all this, I, I, was, I, I was drawn to a verse in 1 John 3, 4. And the only reason I, I, I highlight that is it says there, sin is lawlessness. It's the only place in the Bible where sin is defined with a synonym. I mean, sin is described in detail everywhere, but it just, John says, sin is lawlessness. Anomia is the Greek word. It's the same word used in 2 Thessalonians 2 of Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, of Satan, Satan. Satan is the advocate of lawlessness, an intentional, direct, willing defiance of God and his standards. And as I examined the origin of human sin, where it all starts, as you know, is in Genesis 3, I reached this conclusion. What is really fascinating is because Adam and Eve chose to join the rebellion against God, two questions changed. Question number one, what is morally right? Question number two, who am I? Before they sinned, what is morally right? Everything our creator has detailed for us is what is morally right. And what did God say? The garden is yours. You're my dominion stewards. Be creative cultivators with me. Do what you want with it. But you're moral creatures. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden, don't eat that. Can you trust me enough with that? There are no other prohibitions. There are no other boundaries. That's the only one, because you're moral creatures. I'm asking you to trust me with that. And, and you know that. What happened? So what is right? After Genesis 3, the human race defines what is right. What is right for me? And what the human race did is they declared their independence from God. That is precisely what sin is. It's lawlessness. And then secondly, who am I? Before Genesis 3, who, who are Adam and Eve? The creatures that create the image of God, having dominion, authority over God's world, innocent. But they choose to rebel. Now who are they? We're independent, autonomous, sovereign beings. We're independent of God. They chose not to accept the boundaries. They chose not to accept the boundaries that the Creator set for their good. And so the rest of human history is really does revolve around those two questions. What is right? And who am I? 
because the human race today in 2018 is defining the question, who am I, in very fluid terms. You know, gender is fluid, sexuality is fluid. Everything about the human being is a very fluid, there are nothing, there's nothing really nailed down. I'm autonomous, I choose what I want to be and what I want to do. And the result of that is just what the Lord said. The day that you choose to do this is the day you die. Death has two meanings, separation from God and then the physical death of separation of the body and the soul. I say all that because when you understand that and then you choose to follow Jesus because of the mess that this has created, <laughs> the more you understand God's grace and the more as you're trained in that sanctifying grace of God, the more you desire to obey him, to love him and to shed yourself of the ungodly, worldly passions of the old habits and patterns, and to embrace the new habits and patterns of self-control, uprightness, and godly lives. I'm bringing my life into conformity with my Creator and Redeemer's standards. That's the result of grace. I believe what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, it begins with grace, continues with grace, it ends with grace. It is all of God's grace. And when we really understand that, it, it becomes one of the key motivating dimensions of our life to walk in loving obedience with him. Because we understand. And that's then the second message in that series is going to be on the necessity of justification. God had to remake us. He had to. Because he cannot have anything to do with sin or evil he can't. So he has to thoroughly, totally change us. And that, of course, is what justification is all about. He declares us not guilty, and he imputes righteousness to us. The righteousness of Jesus becomes our righteousness. And then when you understand this, oh my goodness, all that he's done for me. And then you understand that, and what we talked about, Woody used the word sanctification, or no, Glenn used the word sanctification, that God gives us his spirit, gives us his word, gives us one another, more dimensions of his grace to enable us to walk in loving obedience with him. That's more and more of the motivation. I want to walk with him in obedience. I want to get rid of this crap, and I want to embrace the good. I want to get rid of the of everything that's been so self-destructive and dysfunctional in my life and embrace that which is pleasing to my, to my Lord and Savior. That's what he means by verse, uh, verse, uh, 14, uh, verse 12. And as we've said a zillion times in this class, how long does this take? It is, that's our life. But, and I, I'm pretty sure most of you, I know that is absolutely true in my life. I do not want to go back to my life before 1972. I, I would never want to go back to that. But, you know, that's something you learn because the, the more you walk with the Lord, the more you want to maintain that intimate fellowship with him. God has us in his school, the school of grace. And until he comes back for us or we die to go to be with him, we never graduate from that school. We never get a PhD. We're always working on the degree. If you want to follow through with the analogy, maybe it's not a good analogy. Well, I, and I think, too, that uh, I don't know how you feel about it, your comment on it, but 
it's a process, as you say, and and it's a desire. God wants fellowship that's voluntary. Yeah, otherwise, he would have made us robotics. But you think about your children when they come to you and they say, Abba, or they say, you know, Daddy or Father. They don't have to, but when they do, it creates a very special relationship mm -hmm. that they love us because they know who we are and they know that we love them. And yet, there's families that are split and parents and children that are split uh, because they wanted to go maybe their own way rather than voluntarily um, be a part of a family, the immediate family, mom and dad, and, you know. And that's got to be tough on parents when the kids choose not to do that. And it's just maybe a glimpse of how God feels about his children, which we are, whether we want to uh, have fellowship with him or not, it seems like. Absolutely. We are in the family of God, and the um, probably one of the greatest privileges we have is to call God our Heavenly Father. I mean, that we we so, we're so used to that, maybe maybe in one way, but how really powerful and profound and deep and precious that really is. That I have the right and the privilege to call the creator of the universe my heavenly father. And that relationship of father to child is an analogy that's developed throughout the scriptures. And that is, uh, that's part of what, and this, I hope you're just getting this. Titus is to teach his people sound doctrine. Teach them what grace means. And when you teach them what grace means, this, this is the intended result. This is what you will start to see. People who will be renouncing those things that are displeasing to their Heavenly Father and embracing those things that are pleasing to their Heavenly Father. That's another way of putting this uh, in verse 12. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a magnificent um, result of sound doctrinal teaching. If, if, if you walk away this, this afternoon, because it will soon be afternoon here, if you walk away this afternoon with kind of a reignited interest in the depths of God's grace to you, that, that, that is wonderful. That is one of the most important things for you to really get your arms around. The grace of God. He owes us nothing. We are rebelled against him. He offers us everything. Because we deserve it? No. Because we've merited it? No. Because we worked for it? No. Because we performed well enough? No. Because he loves us. And he offers us everything. And the greatest, the greatest means of, of us getting into that relationship with him is through Christ, whose death, burial, and resurrection redeemed us. Oh, Jim. Uh -huh. One of the things I've been doing, and it's not a 
probably other people do it too, but as I'm reading scripture, I, I go like, for by grace has appeared to you, Tom. Mm -hmm. I put my name in it. Personalize it. Personalize the scripture. It's excellent. And that is exactly how um, Paul wants Titus to teach his people. You personalize this truth. It isn't just, you know what esoteric means, esoteric, kind of highbrow, only for the very... It's not just that kind of truth. It is practical truth for everyone. So yes, personalize. Insert your name. Mm -hmm. God so loved me mm -hmm. that he gave his only begotten son. That is, that is precisely what this is, uh, what this is all about. Now there's a third item, a third quality of, of grace, and that's in verse 13. It's the future. So as grace is training us, we're in that paiduo, that school of grace. There's another aspect of that school. We learn to wait for that blessed. And the word wait, uh, that doesn't, it's hard to bring it into English with just one word. But it's the, there's an anticipation, uh, an excitement, a, a positive wanting desire for this blessed hope. Now, the blessed hope is referring to an event, and it's described as the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, somewhat of a bunny trail, but it's doctrinal. That phrase, prepositional phrase, of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, that's grammatically one of the most important proofs for the deity of Jesus Christ in the Bible. Do you want me to repeat that? I want that to be in your thought paper for next week. That prepositional phrase, of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, grammatically, that is one of the most important proofs of the deity of Jesus there is in the Bible. Because who is our great God and Savior? I mean, look at the grammar. Who is our great God and Savior? Jesus Christ. So, I mean, do you understand what I, the grammar of this? But, I mean, that's not the main point. The main point is where the blessed hope is the appearing of Jesus in all his glory. Oh, and by the way, he's our great God and Savior. It's almost like that. It's almost incidental, but it isn't incidental. Theologically, right at the center. And so, what, what, what is he saying here? What is Paul saying? Titus, teach your people this. Teach your people that the grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection made salvation available to all people. And as you embrace that, the second element of his grace, he puts you into a school where you learn to begin to shed two things and embrace three things. It's called sanctification. And all the while, you have this anticipation, positive, exciting exhilaration. You can't wait for Jesus to come back for you. And Jesus is, don't forget, you're a great God and Savior. Now, my, my own view of that is this is a reference to the rapture because that's Jesus promising, uh, fulfilling his promise to come back for his church. Not everybody sees it that way, but I think that's clearly the context. So the point is that a future promise of God should affect your present behavior now. What's the future promise? 
Jesus said, you can look at it in John 14, I'm going back to the Father, but I will come back for you. I promise. Here it is. You're waiting for that. You're waiting for him to fulfill that promise. And what phrase does he use to describe it? That blessed hope. And so every morning, and I'm, that doesn't happen to me, but maybe for some of you, but it's one of those things we should maybe even think about each time we open our eyes. Maybe today. That's waiting for the blessed hope. Anticipating, exciting, thrilled. Maybe today. And yet we're kind of disappointed when people die because of our own personal relationship with yeah. them. But of course. They understand to leave, live oh, yeah. like they yeah. have never lived. And it's yeah. a glorious thing. Absolutely. Transition Absolutely. from this everyday grind stuff that we yeah. go through. Yeah. <laughs> you know, tired. Yeah. You know, whatever. We go to bed, we get up, we eat. You know, and, and then to experience that relationship is far beyond. And it's everything that he has designed it to be. You know, I guess, I don't know. I, we have no idea what it's like, but it's yeah. got to be better than this. Yeah, absolutely. And then when we're glorified and receive our resurrected body, then it's even better in a, in a sense. So, um, I hope you've gotten this, this past, present, and future dimension of the grace of God. But let's not miss verse 14. It's almost like Paul says, I just I have to elaborate a little more on our great God and Savior, who gave himself for us, that's substitutionary, who gave himself for us with two purposes, to redeem us from all lawlessness and, second purpose, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So it's like Paul says, oh, I just, let me talk a little more about this, our great God and Savior, relative clause, who, in a substitutionary way, gave himself for us, he died for us, to redeem us. Do you, do you know what redeem means? Redeem means to purchase, to buy. That's what redeem means. So Jesus bought us out of the marketplace of lawlessness. As I mentioned uh, a while ago when I've been studying for the sermon series I'm doing, lawlessness is how the New Testament defines sin. Anomia, lawlessness. So Jesus, in giving himself for us, his substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection, for us, bought us out of the marketplace of sin. To whom now do we belong? Okay, you obviously didn't hear that question, so I'll repeat it. To whom now do we belong? Jesus. We belong to him. We belong to him. We're, we're his. And that's what he says, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good work. So he redeems us, he buys us out of the marketplace of lawlessness and then begins the process of purifying us because we belong to him. Now I know we don't get excited about spiritual truth here in this class, but that is a summary of everything that God is doing through Jesus Christ so that then we have a zeal, zealous zeal, we have a zeal for good works. Takes self-controlled, upright, godly life, takes us back. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a magnificent, succinct summary 
of everything the grace of God does for us. This, that's what, I mean, I absolutely love this paragraph. It's one of my favorite paragraphs in the whole New Testament because it so summarizes everything that God's redemptive program is doing. And if you put your faith in Christ, this is, this is you. It's referring to you. This is what God is doing. Do you, don't you love that little thought? We are his own possession. We belong to him. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, it speaks where the Father is speaking to the Son, the Messiah. I promise to you your inheritance. What's the inheritance? The inheritance is the people, human beings, that the Father has promised to the Son. Faithful Israel, the church, and all those who put their faith in them. Um, it's, it, it's, it's, a way, it's another way for you and me to think about our identity. Who are we in Christ? So I, I'm, part, I'm part of the church. I'm part of his personal possession. I belong to him. I've been bought with a price. The first Corinthians 6 tells us the price was the shed blood of Christ. No, it's, it's all of that. That's who I am. My identity is related to my relationship with Jesus. Not my gender, not my sexuality, not my vocation, not my bank account, not my house, not my car. It's my relationship with Jesus. It's not that those things aren't important, but my identity is shaped by my relationship with Christ. And if somebody is outside of Christ, they will never, ever discover the essence of who they are. They'll always be fleeing from one thing to another. Workaholic, they're focusing on their unique identity is their work, their vocation. That's who I am. Someone that's addicted to something, everything is shaped by their, the addictive behavior for that thing, whatever it is, whether it's drugs, alcohol, tobacco, whatever. Jesus redeems us to create a new identity for us. We're his. We belong to him. I've said this before, 242 times in the New Testament, the phrase in Christ is used. That defines who we are. I'm in Christ. And so um, as we bring this to a conclusion then, I, I mean, I, I hope, one, I've communicated my enthusiasm for this passage, but far, far more importantly, that you understand this passage. It is a very central passage that it behooves us to every now and then just read it again. This is what the grace of God has done for me and the effect it should have in my life. All right, may I leave it, or do you want to make any other comments or questions? Well, then. I just have one comment, and that is that sometimes we can grow discouraged or get discouraged, which is the, what the devil wants. Mm. And, uh, and then we start inflicting guilt upon ourselves that comes not from us, but from the devil and the evil one would call those shortcomings to our attention maybe because he wants to, oh my goodness, he delights in doing that yep. to nullify us as a believing Christian and as a servant of Christ don't you think, I mean don't. it seems like Christians sometimes are extremely hard on themselves like I shouldn't have done that I'm, I'm going to give it up I just, I can't cut it I, we can't 
punishment. But if we know that he loves us, that we can, well, then we can go on. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I mean, I, I care about these people here. I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, Your comments have several different parts to it. But it is, um, I believe, because I've seen it in my own life, and I've seen the lives of many, many, many young guys I've mentored over the years, false guilt is one of the most effective weapons Satan can use to defeat us. And what I mean by false guilt is, you know, guilt is something the Holy Spirit, we come into a relationship with the Lord, Guilt is something that the Holy Spirit can use to change our character, change our actions. But if we've dealt with it, you know, just by Lord, I'm sorry I said that, I'm sorry I did that, you're restored, There's not, God's not going to hold that against you, and Satan keeps bringing it up, and you just feel guilty about it. Uh, that false guilt is so destructive and so defeating, and that's why confession, which is a term used in it, confession is mean, all it means in the Greek language is you agree with God. You just agree with what God says. Yes, Lord, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. And you're just agreeing. You confess it. Immediately, your relationship with him is restored. And it's just, it's not an issue. God doesn't hold, God, do you remember what you did? God never does that. God is not into performance. Perform, then I'll love you. Do this, then I'll love you. And I know I've said this before. The clear teaching of the scripture is nothing you can do that's going to cause God to love you more or love you less than he does right now. It is a total, comprehensive, unconditional love for you. And the greatest example of that is Christ. So part of that strategy for holiness is how do I deal with that false guilt? How do I deal with a performance-based approach to my life? Here's grace again. It's grace. Grace is unmerited favor, which by definition means it's not about performance. To earn favor. I mean, that, that's it's getting all that sorted out in your life. So then you start to say, and I can't tell you how many times I've prayed this, Whatever it is, you say, Lord, change my will about this. Change my will, my desire for this. Because I know it's not good for me. I know it, but you love me as my Heavenly Father. Change my will. Transform it. So that I no longer want to do that. I no longer want to be whatever it is. And that is, that's a freeing way to define in words our relationship with the Lord. So that those false guilt trips that Satan constantly puts on us, because they can be, so, I've seen those young guys, but they're so destructive, self-destructive. Because young guys, you know, one of the struggles of young guys is pornography or all kinds of things. But also, I mean, just a listlessness and sluggishness about life. You know, I'll figure it out later. No, you know, it's time now. You know, you just, those kinds of things that, you, you just have to push, motivate, and encourage. And every now and then take a two-by-four and slap them against the side of the head. Figuratively speaking. I'm just kidding. All right, let's go and conclude chapter two. We're about to cross a milestone, finish a chapter. 
Jim said he can hardly believe it, but finish the chapter. We're almost ready to do it. Man, it's summary now. Declare these things. What things? Everything in the previous paragraph. Declare these things. Exhort. Rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus, you're a young man. You're young. You're just getting started. I've given you the job of organizing the church at Crete. So, declare, exhort, and rebuke. And that's what we've talked about. Now, chapter 3. I, I honestly find the first two verses of chapter 3 utterly astonishing. This deals with the people in Crete and the relationship to the governing authority of that island. Who was the governing authority of the island? Rome. Crete was a possession of the Roman Empire. Now, let me start with this. By the early, late 1st century, early 2nd century, more and more people in the Roman Empire are looking skeptically at the church because it's growing. And there were three charges leveled against the church. Charge number one, they're atheists, which is absurd. But why would they charge? Why would people in the Roman Empire, officials in the Roman Empire, charge the Christians with atheism? They, the they would not follow the Roman religion, particularly the Caesar cult. They would not bow down to Caesar. The phrase of the Roman Empire was Caesar Curios. Caesar is Lord. What's the church saying? Jesus. Jesus is Lord. The first confessional statement of the church was Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Jesus is Lord. And if they would not bow down to the Caesar, they would be considered an enemy of the empire. Second charge was incest. Why were they charging the early church with incest? They were demonstrating love. They were demonstrating love. The first century church were huggers. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, the holy kiss, you know, type of thing. There are certain people in my church and in others that I've known over the years, they're huggers, and I thought, oh, no, they're coming down the hall. That means when I see them, they're going to hug me. So I've gotten used to that. It's okay. It's all right. You know, I'm not, and my wife is instinctively a hugger. I'm not. But anyway. But also, <clears throat> we knew this, <clears throat> excuse me, from the New Testament. How are they addressing one another? Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Paul does that all over his writings, so does John and so on. Third charge was uh, cannibalism. That's maybe the easiest one for you to understand. Remember, there are house churches. Do you know what they're doing in there on Sunday morning? Do you know what I've heard? What do you think they're saying? They're drinking the blood of a man. They're eating his body. I mean, now, again, you know, without understanding what was going on, that's what... They're incest, they're hugging each other, calling each other brothers and sisters, and, and they're cattle in their eating. On Sunday morning, they're eating the body of and blood, drinking the blood of a man. It's a horrible misunderstanding. So in the early first century, uh, sorry, early second century, early 100s, a man named Justin, nicknamed Justin the Martyr, he wrote two books. He wrote more than that, but the two on further. One was a book to the Senate in Rome. Another was a book to the Caesar in Rome. The thesis of both books was 
Christians make the best citizens. They make the best citizens. Don't don't persecute them. Don't condemn them. All these charges are are silly. And he writes a defense of the church. This is what Paul is telling Titus to do. Titus, teach the people on Crete to be good citizens. In verse 1, three ethical duties to the state. And in verse 2, four ethical duties to the general population. This is not dealing with the church. This focus is not on the church. This is the general civil society of the Roman Empire. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. There are the three ethical duties to the government, to the state. Verse 2, four ethical duties to the larger society, to citizens. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. You see, now listen, let's follow the theme of the book. Gracious living will produce gracious citizens. The grace of God will produce gracious living, which will produce gracious citizens. Now, Paul writes this in the early 60s AD. Who's on the throne in Rome? Nero. Have you ever heard of Nero? N-E-R-O. Okay, some of you know Roman history, some of you don't. He was not a nice man. He was a horrible ruler, just unbelievable. Uh, so when it says, be submissive to rulers and authorities, be obedient, everybody's saying, but Nero! That's right. So let's talk about this. Christians make the best citizens. I want to start it from this vantage point. I want to put it this way. From God's perspective, what is the stewardship responsibility? Maybe I'll make that plural. Responsibilities of the state. God created the state. God created with... uh, Clear stewardship responsibilities. One is to preserve order. Two is to promote justice. Three is to, I'll put it this way, thwart. Thwart. Evil. Do you know what thwart means? Thwart. Okay. Just thwart evil. And so he's saying, Titus, teach your people to be submissive to the state in these three areas. This is what the state's supposed to do. So did Rome preserve order? Absolutely. You get out of you get out of line, the legions of Rome would crush you. Did Rome promote justice? Yes, one of the greatest gifts of the Roman Empire was rule of law. We got a word jurisprudence from the Roman Empire. 
Now, I'm not saying they, they carried it out perfectly. They didn't. And to toward evil. Well, in the sense that societal evil, yes. Again, not saying everything they do is perfect, but this is what the state is supposed to do. So Titus, teach the people on Crete to have that disposition to yield, that inclination to follow their governmental leaders, because this is what the leaders are supposed to do. How many Roman leaders were there between Nero and Caesar? Between Nero and Julius Caesar? Well, it wasn't Caesar. Julius Caesar. Wasn't he in command when Jesus was? No, no, no. His, uh, when Jesus was born, his nephew, Caesar Augustus, Octavian, okay. Jewish Caesar was killed in 44 BC. Okay. But by the time Jesus is born, Caesar Augustus is on the throne. During Christ's public ministry, Tiberius, okay. who was the son of Caesar Augustus, okay. was on the throne. And then between Tiberius and Nero, how many? Oh, there were, uh, no, there was Caligula and Cl- uh, Claudius and then Nero. Yep. Uh, and the, the, the further you get, and farther I should say, in distant time, farther you get from Tiberius, the worse the rulers get, until Vespasian. Then the Flavians are very good rulers. I'm not, they're not spiritual at all, but they're very good, very effective rulers. Um, and then when did the um, when did that empire collapse? Well, uh, the, the that. It's a hard question to answer, Dave, without uh, getting into some detail. But simply put, the Western Empire collapses in 476 A.D. The Eastern Empire does not collapse until 1453 A.D. The Eastern Empire lasts for another thousand years. But that's centered in what is today Turkey. But anyway, does that answer your question on historical stuff? All right. Now, again, this is... In a way, this is hard for you and me because when you read submit to rulers and authority to be obedient, you're thinking of politics. But he's a Democrat and I'm a Republican and I don't want to do that. Now, I know you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. And, you know, that's just an abstract thought to you. But I mean, I, I, when Obama was president, and I'm not saying this proving it, but when Obama was president, evangelicals in many ways broadly speaking, Barack Obama was this close to Antichrist. I mean, he was the incarnation of Satan. No, really. I mean, it was just, and I'm not saying that what he was doing was, but it was just that that view. So therefore, I'm not going to obey anything he says. I'm going to do anything he says. First uh, first Timothy uh, chapter uh, 5 says we're to pray for those in authority over us pray for our president. And I used to kid Evans, how many times have you prayed for Barack Obama? I would never pray for him. I, I will never pray for him. He said, I'm not, I'm not approving of what he's saying or doing, but the Bible tells you you should pray for him. Let me tell you a story. When my wife, um, this goes back quite a ways, but you remember said, Senator Edward Kennedy? You yes. remember him? Yeah. Uh, he was kind of, when he was alive, in the Senate, he was kind of the epitome of liberalism, pol- political liberalism, you know, and, and a lot of the things he stood for and, and tried to represent um, were uh, were things that it would be hard to disagree, hard to agree with him. 
and I, I'll never forget, I'll never forget this. It was it was uh, during the week uh, weeknight. I couldn't tell you what uh, night it was or anything, but uh, the thing about Kennedy came on, and some policy was standing for giving a speech, and th- and I'm just thinking that I thought, well, that is really hard. That is hard to agree with anything he's just saying. And my this was my wife's response, and she took it out. She says, "I'm going to start praying for him," and she wrote his name on a prayer list. And until the day he died of brain cancer, I don't know if you remember, he died of brain cancer a number of years ago. But every, every, on her prayer list, when it got to that, every time she prayed for him. I have no idea, you know, what the effects of Peggy's praying for Senator. She's one Christian in the whole world. But, you know, I remember saying to her, you know, honey, that is the right response that we should have. We disagree. We will not embrace the ideas are, or, but to pray for them, that God would change Senator Kennedy's heart. A couple of the people he befriended in those last months of his life were strong Christian men. I don't know if Senator Kennedy's in heaven. I can't answer that question. But I, I thought of how my dear wife responded. She did not respond the normal way evangelical Christians responded to Senator Kennedy. And I just, because what Paul is saying here is, Titus, teach your people the ethical duties they have to the state. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, is a, an expanded passage of Scripture on this. Romans 13, 1 through 7, is an expanded block of teaching on this. And Because there, Paul even adds, which I know you don't want to read, Pay your taxes, pay your customs duties, because it finances governmental responsibilities in these areas. And he says in 1 Timothy 2, when there is order, justice, and evils being thwarted, that's conducive to the gospel being spread. So Paul makes all these connections in one of the most evil period of rulers in Western civilization's history that period of those very terrible Roman rulers. Question. Please. So, so where, where do we balance the peace? And I think of the lady that I clerked that would not give marriage certificates to the gays and lesbians. So at, at what point do you start the passive civil disobedience when here it's telling you to be submissive and obedient? So if you read this, she should have given the marriage licenses but she did, and I've seen a lot of Christians applaud her for standing right. up for her. You're, you know, that's, that's correct. You're asking a question that is a legitimate question to ask. And when we were done with all three, I was going to ask that. But So let's, let's do it right now. A submissive rule and authorities, obedient, ready to do for every good work. Are they absolutes? There are three ethical duties. Are they ethical absolutes? Do you know, you, know, you understand what I mean when I phrase it? Okay, we obey and submit. This is a principle that I've, I've I put it this way: we obey and submit until it's a sin to obey and submit. And that I mean that's difficult because there are some blatant issues. Oh yeah, there's no question. You know, like if you, you know, presumably you're. Uh, a Nazi soldier in 1939 or 1940, 41, 
and your commanding officer gives you the order to execute all those Jews. Submit? Obey? No, you are under no obligation. However, if you choose not to obey that, the, the odds are very high you will lose your life or you will go to prison or whatever it is. And that phrase that Glenn used, civil disobedience. Civil disobedience is uh, it's a New Testament idea. But civil disobedience is you obey, you obey the state until it's a sin to obey the state, but then if you choose to disobey the state, you will suffer the consequences. Jail or maybe even martyrdom, which, as you know, in the early church uh, was, was quite high. Now, I'm saying all that, so in that context, Glenn, if you're you know, a, a bureaucrat in a, in a county office that has the responsibility of issuing marriage licenses, and you refuse to issue a marriage license to a, a same-sex couple, uh, the odds are very high that you will lose your job if you refuse to do that. But you're making a stand for that which is clear, at least I think it is, clearly taught in, in the Word of God. Now, in the, in the nature of our society as a democratic republic, where I'll be in a minority, that's, that's still a, a group of people who rise up and support somebody like that, so that often laws are then, ordinances are modified to allow for, under certain convictions and statements of conscience, you are not obligated to do that. That was part of the whole debate in the Affordable Care Act about contraceptive pills and medicine as an employee benefit. And that's been approved by the Supreme Court. If a business chooses not to do that, they're not under obligation to do it. And that's, that's one of the beauties of our, of our system of government with the Constitution that we have. Now, we're getting way off, but, I mean, this is, this is part of the tension, though. Is it off or is it not? Well, I mean, it off in the sense that direct teaching is here, but then the other teaching of the Scriptures that there are certain circumstances where if authority tells you to do something that clearly is a sin for you to do that, you're under no obligation to do it. However, you will have to suffer more than likely the consequence of not obeying the state or whatever that authority is. Lose your job if it's in a business or whatever. But you're making, and then you, you and it's one of the, the classic examples of that is in, in Acts 4 and 5, where Peter and John are said, don't preach Jesus as Messiah in Jerusalem. What'd they do? They preached Jesus as Messiah in Jerusalem, and what happened to them? They're arrested and end up in prison, and beaten and all that. But they said, when they said, well, I'm sorry, we have to obey God, not man. So if you tell us not to preach Jesus, we're still going to preach Jesus. Well, then we're going to throw you in prison. Okay? And that's exactly what happened. So, I mean, that, that t I, when I was president, we, uh, we had what uh, were called Staley Lectures every, every year. A, a man back east, a really neat guy, set up a foundation, and he sponsored uh, lectureships all over the country in, in faith-based institutions. And every year we had one. And I, had, I brought in Lynn Buzzard. He, he's been retired, so you probably don't recognize, but he was head of the Christian Legal Society. It was a tremendous series of lectures, and one of his lectures was on when does a Christian choose civil disobedience? And uh, I, I got permission then to incorporate some of that in my book on ethics when I wrote that. But he said, you need to ask yourself seven questions. He said, if you choose to disobey authority, don't do it impulsively. Don't do it just because you're angry. 
He said, carefully consider seven, and I, so I reproduced those in my uh, one chapter in my ethics book. But I really like that because he he was when he was here, he was here in the uh, no, about ninety nine, I think it was maybe two thousand, but. Um, it was really an issue, uh, issues of abortion, issues of certain euthanasia practices. What if you're a nurse in a hospital and you're in a unit where they perform abortions? Are you under obligation to do that as a Christian? Well, it depends on the hospital. Now there are a lot of protective things that have been laid out in laws and ordinances. But those can, our, our children and, and our grandchildren, and by our, I mean ours, they're going to face more and more of these kinds of issues. They really are. Of living with the tension, do I obey the state and authority or do I, do I obey the Lord? And that uh, we're not there yet, but I don't think it's going to be too long. It's happening in any parts of Western Europe. Um, now, that is a bunny trail, but it's an important bunny trail. But when you put it in the context of, of First century, Roman Empire, Titus, teach your people this. And please note that third one, be ready for every good work. Remember, this is in the context. This isn't the church. In the context of the society, every good work. What does that mean? Do things. Be good citizens that promote the, the government, whatever it is, to do these things. Make sure you... So, for you and me, in American society, in a democratic republic in which we live, voting is one of those. That's an important responsibility. Being an informed voter, that's one of those. But also, it, you know, I'm just thinking out loud, but things like going to school board meetings, being aware of what is going on that's affecting the kinds of things in society that produce this. And that's, in the, in the Roman Empire, that would, have had, that would have had a lot of interesting applications, but to, to be ready for every good work. Support the Roman legions. They come into town, give them a cup of coffee. I'm making that up. But, I mean, it's just the, the kinds of things that facilitate the stewardship responsibilities of the state. Because, you know, in Rome, the Roman Empire in AD 62 or 63, somewhere around that when this was written, you, you probably are not going to see Nero come to Jesus Christ. Maybe, but probably not. And the whole Roman legions, all 13 of them, they're, they're all over the empire, they all come to know Christ. And then all the provincial governors come to know Christ. And then all the bureaucrats come to know Christ. That maybe will happen, but probably not. So you represent the Lord, you, you, you give testimony to what he's done in your life, you're a witness for the gospel, but you're a good citizen. Put it another way, Christianity is not about political revolution. Not about assassinating rulers. It's not about making waves or being disruptive. In a... In an impulsive sense. Yeah. In a democratic republic, we have the right to make waves through our voting. I mean, those, if you want to put it that way. But, but in these days. Yeah, but I mean, it's just, uh, you know. Uh, do any of you, um, 
Some of you, might, if you've lived here for a while, do any of you remember John Christensen? Mm-hmm. He represented the second congressional district in the House, uh, which Omaha is in the second congressional district. Anyway, he was a friend of mine, and um, uh, I got to know him pretty well. And I remember a couple conversations with him, especially one where I, I asked him, John, what's it like to be in Washington? And he just shook his head, and he said, it is so difficult. And he was, there were a group that went Bible study and so on. He said, it's so difficult. But he said to me, and it was really interesting, you know, if I go into a committee meeting or partake in writing a bill or whatever it is, with an all-or-nothing mentality, he said, you know what I always end up with? Nothing. Because I had to learn as a Christian that in a democratic society, making law is about compromise. It, you just have to compromise. You cannot get everything you want because not everybody is a, 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 a strong evangelical Christian that sees things exactly the way you see them. And so he said, I just learned that, that it is compromise. What, what can I realistically achieve that moves the society a little more toward righteousness? In a democratic society, that's the reality. And that's hard for people. Well, I want it all or I want nothing. You know, I mean, I don't know what issue you're talking about. And, and John said that was the hardest thing for me. He said, despite all of the corruption and the immorality and foul language of Washington, he said that I, I, can, I can represent Jesus and I can stand for what I believe. But he said, in making law, in the committees that I served, and he said, it was, I had to make sure I understood. And if I go in with an all-or-nothing mindset, I usually end up with nothing. But if I seek to compromise, another congressman named uh, Stephen Monsma wrote a book on this. He was from Michigan, but he wrote, he said, every time I voted, I grabbed for as much righteousness as I could. And I t- that's in a democratic Republican society. I don't mean that politically. I mean, that's the nature of our government. But that's kind of how you have to look at it. You know, you, you just... you. Unless everybody eventually sees everything exactly the way you see it, you're going to have to compromise. Kind of grab for as much righteousness as you possibly can. Oh my goodness. The shuffle of papers in the body language indicates it's time for me to shut up. Well, we didn't get this done, but we, we got most of it. So next week we're going to pick up with verse 2. So somebody help me to remember that in case I forget it, because you know how old I am, I forget things. And then we'll just keep moving on with this chapter. All right, let me pray here. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for these men. Thank you for what you're doing through your word in their lives. Thank you for this wonderful passage, chapter 2, that we studied on grace, the present dimension of grace. You've put us in the school of grace, and you're training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The more we come to understand that you are a God of grace, your favor that you shower upon us, the most wonderful example of that is Jesus. But every day, the air we breathe, the food we eat, the house we live in, it's all a dimension of your grace. You owe us nothing, you offer us everything. You're a good, gracious, wonderful God. And because of that, we serve you and love you. And in the context of the beginning of chapter 3, we want to be good citizens. 
That has different meanings in different countries and different eras. But in our country today, what does that mean to be a good citizen? Someone who is submissive and obedient and who seeks to do the good works that enable government to do what it's supposed to do. And that in itself is a difficult issue today. So, Lord, as we, we go our separate ways, dismiss us with your blessing. I pray for each man, whatever special needs there are, special areas of concern, hurt, as well as maybe struggles or decisions that have to be made. Wrap your arms around them. Give them your grace. Give them wisdom, discernment. Help them to be men who represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.